Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the fifth Think Cap Trivia Podcast. My name's Kevin, and it is my pleasure to be your host. Now, some of you may know me from the weekly trivia nights that I host. For those of you who do not, I have been hosting trivia for the past two years, and I've decided to start this show for anyone wanting some extra trivia content while waiting to be together again at our local pub trivia contests or for those simply looking for some interesting information to learn on their daily commute. My goal is that even when the world is back to normal, ThinkCap will become your go-to podcast to supplement your trivia knowledge to help you learn a little bit more whenever you prefer to listen to your favorite podcasts. So, for those of you tuning in for the first time, let me explain how this podcast is structured at the beginning of the show. I will pose a couple of trivia questions to you and give you a few moments to think of your answers, then I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history or data or even just some fun facts behind the answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I will be giving you a brief breakdown that will hopefully satisfy all your curious minds while also entertaining you with my banter. My hope is that by listening to ThinkCap, you will be able to gain knowledge about not just a single question, but about different details surrounding that question. I consider myself a general trivia show, so question topics vary each week, meaning you never know what you're going to get. If you are able to, uh, following, subscribing, and rating the podcast on whatever streaming platform you are listening on will help me and the podcast to continue to improve for you. Um, so please do that if you're able, and with that being said, let me once again welcome you to ThinkCap, and let's get this show started. Like I said, I've got a couple different questions for you, and what I'm going to do is read each question for you, give you a couple moments to think about each answer, and then go through and break down each question one by one in detail. So sit back, relax, and let me read these questions for you. Question number one, what satirical American musician released 62 albums during his lifetime and another 50 posthumously. Once again, what satirical American musician released 62 albums during his lifetime and another 50 posthumously? Question number two, used as a measure of market value, what does GDP stand for? Once again, used as a measure of market value, what does GDP stand for? Question number three, what traditional war dance is internationally known because it is performed by New Zealand's sports teams? Once again, what traditional war dance is internationally known because it is performed by New Zealand's sports teams? Question number four, Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari, also founded the video arcade chain known as what? 
Once again, Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari, also founded the video arcade chain known as what? Question number five, in the movie Back to the Future, how fast did the DeLorean have to go in order to time travel? Once again, in the movie Back to the Future, how fast did the DeLorean have to go in order to time travel? Question number six, on what island country would you find Adam's Peak? Once again, on what island country would you find Adam's Peak? Question number seven, appearing once in a 1989 comic strip, what was the name of Snoopy's father? Once again, appearing once in a 1989 comic strip, what was the name of Snoopy's father? Question eight, in 1785, a large region of what state in the US was known as Franklin? Once again, in 1785, a large region of what state in the US was known as Franklin? Question number nine, how many lanes are there in a standard Olympic swimming pool? Once again, how many lanes are there in a standard Olympic swimming pool? And question number 10, the question is, guitarist Slash, formerly of the band Guns N' Roses, was famous for using what kind of guitar? Once again, guitarist Slash, formerly of the band Guns N' Roses, was famous for using what kind of guitar? All right, so those were the 10 questions for the podcast uh, this week. And now that you have all had a few moments to think of your answers, I'm going to get started with the answer to question number one. The question was, what satirical American musician released 62 albums during his lifetime and another 50 posthumously? And your correct answer, is Frank Zappa. Yes, Frank Zappa was a self-taught musician who, as a teenager, composed classical modernist music while also playing drums in a rhythm and blues band who also learned to play guitar. His very first album debuted in 1966 with a group known as the Mothers of Invention. The album was named Freak Out, and it included a collective of improvs and studio-generated sound collages. Zappa's style was always very eccentric and unique, and it didn't always sit well with a lot of critics of his music. While his music tended to be satirical and light-hearted lyrically, such as his popular song, Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, there were those who appreciated the technical complexity of many of his compositions. In his autobiography, Zappa said, quote, My lyrics are dumb, so what? My texts are meant to distract, not to be analyzed. And Zappa, he was an extremely dedicated artist who recorded continuously on the road 
and never really stopped working and this is obviously evidenced by just the sheer amount of music that he put out over the course of his career. He avoided the temptations to do drugs or to go off the rails in other ways which really allowed him to remain a productive musical mind throughout his entire career. While Zappa was adored by many for his unique and complex style, there were plenty of people who despised him. During a concert in London, a patron rushed the stage and pushed Zappa off of the stage and down into an orchestra pit far below the stage surface, and his reason for doing so was because his girlfriend was infatuated with Mr. Zappa. Now, the fall itself, it really, it almost killed Frank. Um, it broke many of his bones and it actually crushed his larynx, which caused his voice to be lowered by a third of an octave permanently changing his voice for all future music. Uh, he, he joked about this um, after the fact by saying that he would have preferred to change his voice by other methods, but um, that just kind of goes to show how lighthearted he continued to be. But uh, that event actually occurred only a week after the band's stage burst into flames, which happens to be the subject matter of Deep Purple's legendary song, Smoke on the Water. Yes, everyone knows Smoke on the Water for its famous guitar riff, but not everyone knows that it details the fire that occurred during uh, one of Frank Zappa's concerts. And I could go on and on about Zappa's life, but for the sake of time, I'm gonna leave this one here. For anyone interested, I highly recommend looking deeper into Zappa's life and it will without a doubt give you a far greater appreciation knowing the man behind all of that bizarre work. Question number two was, used as a measure of market value, what does GDP stand for? And your correct answer is gross domestic product. The, the GDP is essentially a sum of the total value of all finished goods made in a country within a specific time period. This includes all private and public consumptions, government expenses, investments, construction costs, and the foreign balance of trade. Uh, exports are added to the GDP value while imports are subtracted. That's what that means. And by comparing the GDPs of different countries, economists are able to estimate the size of a country's economy and can even track growth in a certain market. For comparison's sake, the US has the largest GDP with a value of 20.29 trillion, while China sits at second with 13.4 trillion. Next down the list would be Japan, Germany, the UK, France, India, Italy, Brazil, and Canada in that order. And question number three was, what traditional war dance is internationally known because it is performed by New Zealand's sports teams? And your correct answer is the haka. The haka dance is the right answer. The haka is a type of ancient Maori war dance traditionally used on the battlefield, as well as when groups came together in peace to welcome guests or to celebrate great achievements. The haka was intended as a passionate display of a tribe's pride, strength, and unity. For anyone that has watched one before, you undoubtedly noticed the violent foot stomping, the tongue protrusions, and the rhythmic body slaps that occur while the group chants loudly. The words of the haka that are being chanted often poetically describe ancestors and events in a tribe's history. 
Now, as far as sports goes, the tradition of New Zealand teams performing the haka at international athletic competitions had, it, had its roots in 1888 when the New Zealand native football team performed the dance, with the tradition continuing chiefly through New Zealand's rugby team known as the All Blacks. While some native people interpret non-natives performing the dance as a form of cultural appropriation, for those of us who had not heard of the dance before, it's definitely a nice symbol of New Zealand's pride in their history, and generally it's just a pretty entertaining spectacle to watch New Zealand's sports teams perform the intimidating ritual. And that brings us to question number four. The question was, Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari, also founded the video arcade chain known as what? And your correct answer is Chuck E. Cheese. Yes, Chuck E. Cheese was created by the same founder from Atari. Nolan Bushnell started more than 20 companies and is one of the founding fathers of the video game industry. Just the fact that most of us have played an Atari game or have patronized a Chuck E. Cheese or just that the brands are household names shows the genius that Bushnell was. He and Ted Dabney started Atari Incorporated in 1972. Now, Bushnell would later buy out Dabney and hire engineer Alan Alcorn as the company's second employee, and he tasked Alcorn with making a coin-operated version of a Magnavox Odyssey tennis game. Now, if you think of classic tennis games, you might know where this is going. From this project, the eternally popular Pong was born. Many elements of the game, such as the ball that speeds up as the game progresses, was actually Alcorn's brilliant idea. When Pong's home unit was sold in 1975, the sales really skyrocketed, and Atari became a staple that would usher in an era of at-home video games that remains popular to this day. After seeing his success and recognizing Bushnell's promise as an inventor and business owner, in 1976, Steve Jobs asked him to put in money in exchange for a minor equity stake in his company, Apple. About the deal, Nolan has since said, quote, Steve asked me if I would put in 50000 and he would give me a third of his company. I was so smart, I said no. It's kind of fun to think about that when I'm not crying. So clearly he turned it down and greatly regrets it, but again he would go on to more successful business ventures on his own as stated in the trivia question he would open up chuck e cheese's pizza time theater on may 17th of 1977. his logic in opening up the chain was really perfect for growing his atari brand as his vision for chuck e cheese was to be a place where kids hang out and eat pizza and play video games and therefore would act as a perfect distribution center for atari games over time, the company grew and expanded, and today there are over 600 Chuck E. Cheese locations. For anyone that has been to one, you may remember the big animatronic animals which play music for the patrons. And this is actually an ode to Disney and the automated entertainment that you would find at their parks because Bushnell always dreamed of working for Disney, but was repeatedly turned away when he first entered the working world. 
In the end, many Atari games did actually find themselves at Disney's parks, and Nolan Bushnell went on to have a pretty fantastic career, so I would say that things worked out pretty well for everybody. Question number five was, in the movie Back to the Future, how fast did the DeLorean have to go in order to time travel? And your correct answer is 88 miles per hour. And maybe I'll do another Back to the Future question in a future podcast, but for this one, I'm going to focus on just the pseudoscience that allows the DeLorean to time travel. Emmett Doc Brown designed the flux capacitor, which is the key to time travel, in October of 1955. He was finally able to test it 30 years later, in 1985. The flux capacitor is built into the body of a DeLorean DMC-12. At the time the directors decided on the car to use, John DeLorean, who is the founder of DeLorean Motor Company, was in the middle of a high-profile drug trafficking trial. The directors felt that by making the time machine a DeLorean, it would add an edgy pop culture component to the movie. Universal Studios was offered $40,000, which is an equivalent to over $100,000 today, to replace the car with a Ford Mustang in the film. To this, the writer of the movie, Bob Gale, responded, quote, Doc doesn't drive an effing Mustang, end quote, and went on to say that one of the things we insisted upon in creating the car was that it reflected Doc Brown's character. Doc built this thing in his garage. When you're an inventor, you're in a hurry to find out if it works. The wires are all exposed. This thing looks like it could explode. And that's one of the things that makes it cool. The DeLorean's half-finished look in the movie was meant to evoke the car's shambling inventor. Doc Brown installed a nuclear reactor into the car that generated 1.21 gigawatts of electricity when traveling at 88 miles per hour, which was just enough to activate and run the flux capacitor. The time travel destination was set using the dashboard date clock, which displayed destination time, present time in the vehicle, and the last time departed. In a trip to the far future year of 2015, Doc made a few upgrades to the DeLorean, adding flight thrusters into the wheels that allowed the car to fly, and a Mr. Fusion power plant that allowed the machine to run on basically anything. There were only three DeLoreans used in the filming of Back to the Future and its sequels, and the original one for used in most of the filming for the first movie was actually refurbished in 2010 and is now on display at Universal Studios where the movies were filmed. And that brings us to question number six. Question six was, on what island country would you find Adam's Peak? And your correct answer is Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is the right answer. Standing at 7,359 feet tall, Adam's Peak is located at the crest of a huge mountain in central Sri Lanka that is best known for being the location of a large stone formation known as Sripada or Holy Footprint. Sripada is a six-foot rock formation at the top of the mountain that is traditionally believed to be the footprint of various religious characters Local Christians will tell you that the footprint is that of Adam, the first man to walk the earth, and therefore the English namesake of the mountaintop. The legends of Adam are connected to the idea that Sri Lanka was the original Garden of Eden, 
which is where Adam and Eve lived, where they were created by God. And in Muslim tradition, Adam was 30 feet tall, so the fact that his footprint was so large would naturally make sense. Now, in Buddhist tradition, Sri Pada is the footprint of Buddha himself. The famed peak was mentioned in texts that date back to the 4th century BC, with another, another popular legend stating that Buddha had visited the place. The sacred peak is now used as an important pilgrimage for Buddhists, who make the trek over several hours to hike up the nation's second largest mountain to worship in the holy place. and. It really is a breathtaking location that is truly awe-inspiring to look at. It's really no wonder that the place has so many mythical and religious ties. If you don't believe me, just Google the place for yourself. It is really, like, it looks like something straight out of an adventure fantasy film. It's beautiful, and after learning what it was, it's definitely on my list of places to visit. Question number seven, appearing once in a 1989 comic strip, what was the name of Snoopy's father? And your correct answer is Baxter. His father's name was Baxter. As stated in the question, Baxter was uh, a part of a single comic strip appearing on Sunday, June 18th of 1989, which happened to be Father's Day that year. In the comic strip, he is gifted a Father's Day card with eight paw prints on it, signed by all eight of his children, Snoopy, Spike, Belle, Marbles, Andy, Olaf, Molly, and Rover. So I guess that's a trivia question in itself. That is all seven of Snoopy's siblings. He, there are eight total. Uh, Snoopy's mother, on the other hand, uh, another fun fact for you, is named Missy. She and Snoopy's brother Andy are the only two characters to appear in the animated television series before they appeared in a comic strip. In the comic strips, actually, neither of Snoopy's parents' names are explicitly said outright. Rather, Snoopy's mother's name was stated in the television special that she was a part of, and Snoopy's father's name was actually stated in the iPad app called Snoopy's Street Fair. So, while neither are technically comic strip canon, Snoopy's parents are certainly unique characters with names that definitely make for some great trivia questions. Alright, and question number eight. Question number eight was, in 1785, a large region of what state in the U.S. was known as Franklin? And your correct answer is Tennessee. Yes, Tennessee is the right answer. In the time just after the Revolutionary War, the region that covered the majority of eastern Tennessee and, and into western North Carolina was still pretty untamed, but had about 5,000 settlers. After being unable to cede the land to the national government and wanting protection from the threat of attacks from Native Americans, the settlers decided to attempt to declare themselves as a new state. They appointed the swashbuckling John Seaver, a politician and soldier who'd gained fame for fighting the Cherokee Indians, as their governor. They, they chose him to be their new governor of their uh, made-up state. They came up with the name Franklin as a futile attempt to gain Benjamin Franklin's support of their campaign for statehood. Ben Franklin, however, 
did not back their attempt. Franklin's case for statehood did get all the way to Congress, but the petition narrowly fell short of the two-thirds majority necessary uh, for statehood. Virginia and Kentucky were particularly opposed as the land carved out for this new Franklin state claimed some of the mountainous frontier that had already been claimed by the two states. Even still, the territory continued to operate as an independent republic with its own courts, legislature, taxes, and constitution. Its capital was located in Jonesboro. The downfall of Franklin started in 1788 when Governor Seaver made a bid for aid from Spain, which caused him to swiftly be arrested for treason. The land was then claimed by North Carolina and eventually further ceded to form what we now know completely as Tennessee. Believe it or not, Seaver was actually able to avoid serious punishment for his treason charge and went on to become the first governor of the state of Tennessee. Question number nine. How many lanes are there in a standard Olympic swimming pool? And your correct answer no, the question number is not a hint. Your answer is eight. There are eight lanes in a standard Olympic swimming pool. An Olympic-sized swim pool is 50 meters long, which is referred to as long course to differentiate it from shorter 25-meter swimming pools that are more common. The International Swimming Federation says that official pools used in Olympic Games must have a minimum depth of two meters, but there is no official limit to the depth of Olympic swimming pools, which means that pool designers have some freedom to engineer a pool exactly how they like. For example, for the 2008 Beijing Olympics, Chinese engineers took advantage of the depth rules and claimed that they designed the fastest pool possible. Theoretically, increasing the depth of the pool assists the lane lines, which also dissipate water churn from rapid swimming motions, and if you think about it, the less waves you have bouncing around in the pool, the less hydrodynamic drag that the swimmers must resist. Therefore, they experience less fatigue and are able to swim faster. Every year, there are dozens of world records broken at the Olympic Games just by the nature of advancements in training and technique and technology that's used by athletes. But in 2008's pool in Beijing, an astonishing 29 records were broken by the swimmers. For reference, in the following Olympics, where the pool depth was only 3 meters, only 19 records were broken in that year. So that 2008 pool in Beijing it's, was also the one to allow Michael Phelps to claim a record of 8 gold medals, breaking Mark Spitz's record of 7 set in 1972. Phelps's seventh gold of the games, you might remember, was his epic victory over Milorad Kavic, in which he beat the Serbian swimmer by only one hundredth of a second. While still giving credit to Phelps as being the greatest swimmer of our generation, it really makes you wonder what the races would have been like if a more standard pool was used. Would he still have been able to touch out Kavic? Would the same amount of records have been broken? Would he still have captured the same amount of golds? And honestly, he is just that good and his victories probably all would hold true. But man, that pool really gave us some historic and memorable races. 
That brings us to question number 10, which is our final question of the podcast. The question was, guitarist Slash, formerly of the band Guns N' Roses, was famous for using what kind of guitar? And your correct answer is a Gibson Les Paul. The lasting image of anyone who has seen Slash perform live or just watched his performances on the internet is that of his iconic look. Aviator sunglasses, a black top hat with his long curly black hair falling past his shoulders, and his head down ripping out some solos on his Gibson Les Paul. Slash skyrocketed to fame during his time with Guns N' Roses, but has had a very successful career even after splitting from the band in 1996. He has recorded solo albums, been a part of supergroups like Slash's Snake Pit, and done session work with successful bands like Velvet Revolver. And most recently, he's put out some fantastic records in conjunction with American vocalist Miles Kennedy. On stage from the early 1990s and even to this day, Slash mainly plays with a Les Paul standard, particularly two 1987 models that he has brought on tour with Guns N' Roses, Slash's Snake Pit, and Velvet Revolver. Slash himself has said, the main guitar I play live is one of two Les Paul standards I bought in 1987. This one has always been my main stage guitar, it just sounds good and it feels right to me. Now, for studio sessions, Slash almost exclusively employs a 1959 Les Paul standard, a replica made by Chris Derrick which was purchased for him by his manager in 1986 to record the Guns N' Roses album Appetite for Destruction. And with that 59 Les Paul, he recorded almost all parts of Guns N' Roses, Slash's Snake Pit, Velvet Revolver, and his solo albums. That one has gotten a lot of play. But sometimes though, when he's looking for a specific sound, he'll play with other guitars, uh, such as a Flying V, an Explorer, a Stratocaster, or a Telecaster. His guitar collection includes a impressive 212 guitars that have a combined value of over $2 million. He has become so synonymous with the Gibson Les Paul brand that dating back as early as 1990, Gibson has released 12 slash signature guitars in collaboration with the musician. It really is just the perfect pairing. You've got an iconic musician paired with an iconic classic looking guitar. It really is a match made in heaven and it's really no surprise that Slash feels that they are so comfortable for him and that they sound so good. Like I said, next time you see a video of Slash or uh, if you happen to see him live and are so lucky to do that, I guarantee you he'll be rocking a Gibson Les Paul. Now, that brings us once again to the end of our show. If you have made it this far, I thank you for hanging out with me, and I hope that you learned a little bit. And if you enjoyed the show, I would greatly appreciate you sharing it with a friend or just another fellow trivia lover. I'm releasing podcasts every week, so in order to stay up to date with what I'm putting out, you can follow ThinkCap at ThinkCap, T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram, or follow on Facebook with the same name. In both profiles, there are links to each streaming platform where the show is available, in addition to fun content that's posted every couple of days to keep you thinking. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review, like, subscribe, or follow if you can, 
Any feedback from you guys is huge for helping take this podcast to the next level. In addition, I would love to hear what you guys want to learn. If you have any fun trivia facts or you want questions pertaining to a certain topic, please leave that in your feedback or comment on any of ThinkCap's social media posts. And as this is going to be released on June 29th, I wish all of you a happy and safe 4th of July holiday weekend. And once the weekend is over, you can look forward to the next episode of ThinkCap on July 6th, which will be a USA holiday weekend-themed trivia podcast. So uh, once again, thanks for listening. I will catch you next week. Again, have a safe and happy holiday weekend, and take care. Don't kill